Well, tonight we begin a study in the book of Romans, but not in the first chapter. We begin in chapter 5, probably midway through in chapter, verse 12 out of chapter 5. So as in any study that we want to do with the Bible, we need to preface it by giving you a context and understanding the overall letter of the book of Romans. Rome was a church that Paul had not visited yet. That's vital to understand. He had never met these Christians. He had never been able to preach for them, teach them anything. And that's important to note because that gives us the book of Romans in that it is the most systematic laying down of the, of the theology of Paul that we have anywhere. Because he hasn't been there. He didn't get a chance to lay it all down verbally in front of them. So he writes it to them. Uh, chapters 1 through 8 are probably, without question, the most detailed account of what it means, first of all, to be lost, to get saved, and then how to live life now until we get to glory. There are promises throughout of eternity and glory and getting there, safe and secure because of certain established facts. So if you will go to the chapter 1 of um, the book of Romans, I read for you now the introduction to the book of Romans by the writers, at least the translators of the ESV. It's, it's an excellent introductory thoughts for the book. They write this, Romans is the longest and most systematically reasoned of Paul's letters. Paul announces its theme in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, which we'll look at in a minute. The gospel is God's power for salvation because it shows us that the righteousness of God is through faith to all who believe. Paul explains the need for justification through faith because of sin in the first four chapters. He then spells out the results of justification by faith in terms of both present experience and future hope in chapters 5 through 8, which is where we'll land in these weeks and months together. In the next three chapters, beyond chapter 8, verse 39, he expresses his sorrow that his fellow Israelites have not embraced the gospel. And he wrestles with the theological implications of this. So the first four chapters are all about how a man gets lost or is lost. He deals with three specific groups, the religious, the non-religious, and the pagan. And he tells and he shows, and the intellectual, he shows how all of them are equally without God through their birth. They're lost. And then he lays out within chapters three and four the great doctrine of faith that were justified by his blood from all that we have done. You'll see some of that. And then the writer goes on and says, he concludes by describing how the gospel should affect one's everyday life in chapters 12 and 13, 12 through verse chapter 16. So there you have this layout of the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 4. How is it that we are lost without God? We have to be shown that by God himself, revealed in his word. How a person gets saved by simple faith 
in the shed blood, that he's justified from all his transgressions by his believing, simply believing in the gospel, no works. Then chapter 5, because we're going to stay here, and we don't, you know, when people get saved, they just don't go zip up to heaven. We're here, and we have this body. And within the scope of a physical body, there is a thing called flesh and sin within us that is still needing to be dealt with. And in chapters 5 through 8, it's, it's all about that. And then beyond is the dealing of the Jews and how they've rejected the gospel and the heartache and break, heartbreak of Paul. And then how to live in this world based on all this stuff. So go with me to chapter 1, verse 16, for the, the thesis, if you will, of the book of, of Romans. Chapter 1, verse 16, declares this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone, notice, who believes. Simple faith, they believe. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to us. Chapter, six, ver, chapter 1, verse 16 is the first four chapters of the book, how you get saved. There it is. You see it? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. No effort, no works, no membership in a church, no baptism, simple faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God that saved you, not your own. Okay? So there it is, chapter 1, verse 16, is the first four chapters of the book. Chapters 5 through 8 is verse 17. Take a look at verse 17. It's the thesis for what we're going to be teaching in the next three months. Verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now what does that mean? In the gospel, after you got saved, in it is revealed not your righteousness, but the righteousness of God is revealed to you in progressive steps from faith to faith to faith to faith as you begin to understand the work of the righteousness of God on the cross on your behalf. So growth isn't a matter of you doing anything. Growth is a matter of the revelation of the truth of the righteousness of God on the cross and what he accomplished in your place for you and what happened to you in that cross. It's progressive. It takes time to grow in faith, but you have to see it first. And it's all about the righteousness of God as revealed in Christ at the cross. Everything about Christianity, and I mean everything, is centered on the event of the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Everything is there. The whole deal. It is the righteousness of God revealed. Notice the rest of the verse 17. For it is written, The righteous, that's who we are now that we've been justified, that's us. The righteous shall live by faith. 
Notice that's how we grow. That's how we expand. That's how we progress in life, by the Christian life, by our trusting faith in what we see the work of the cross to be. Everybody follow that. Everything is in that cross. Everything is in the work of Christ. And how we see it and understand it in the righteousness of God, we grow by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And we live by believing. We grow by believing. You don't grow by more Bible study, more prayer, more church attendance, more evangelism. You don't grow on a smorgasbord basis of a thousand things men give you to do. You grow by faith, by seeing the truth as revealed of the righteousness of God in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 of Romans. Okay, it's all right there. The whole deal. So go with me to chapter 5 as a basis for our study. Verse 17 is the whole deal. We live by this stuff right here. This is how we live and grow. Chapter 5 will begin in verse 12, but I've got to back up just a little bit to give you a little earmark preface to it all. Notice it says in verse 6 that while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were rebellious against him, while we shook our fist in heaven and, and rejected Christ, that's when he was dying for us. Wow. In the state of open rebellion, he died for us. If he did that much, notice what it says. Since therefore, notice the, the, the end of verse 8. Christ died for us in our place. Vicarious atonement. There it is. Vicarious atonement is a theological term meaning he took our place on the cross. That cross is where I deserve to be and where you deserve to be. He took our punishment. He died for us. Never take for granted that you know that, believe that, embrace that. There are hordes of Christianity and, and Christian churches that do not believe in vicarious atonement. They do not believe Christ died in our place for us, taking the punishment of God in our place. They don't believe it. Years ago, I, I was at a Baptist church in upstate New York in my hometown. Uh, they were using the church to baptize my mom and dad who'd come to Christ. And I was talking to the preacher there at the Baptist church in Cobleskill, New York. And I asked him about some verses. We got talking a little bit. He goes, oh, oh. You're talking about vicarious atonement. I said, absolutely. And he said, well, I don't preach that here. I said, you don't. He said, well, half the people believe in it, and the other people don't believe in it, so I just kind of stay away from it. And I stepped back because the whole lightning thing was going to come in on us and fry this guy to death. Well, what do these folks believe then that why Christ died? Well, some believe he died as an example for us that we should be sacrificial to show the heart and love of God, to transform our lives and bring us up out of the 
He died in our place because we deserve the judgment and wrath of Almighty God. And it, he, took our, he took judgment for us. Uh, I was listening to um, the funeral for Bo, uh, Bo Biden, yes, and uh, the gentleman who the reverend, uh, whatever the reverend his name was that preached the sermon, this is what he said. And I, I, maybe someday I'll get a clip of it so you can hear it during a sermon. This is what he said. I prefer not to think of God the Father as one who would send his son to die on a cross. Then he said, what father would do that? I prefer to think of God as sending Jesus to show us how to live. Whoa. So don't take for granted that you go, oh, Christ died for us. Well, every, No, they do not. What he was doing was relating God the Father to an earthly father. Oh, none of us would do that. He's brought God down to our level, and he's trying to understand God from this position up. We have a book of Revelation facts that tells us from God's perspective, he's declared certain things about him. That man doesn't even know the love of God. High up, reverend, whatever, in whatever. Okay, so um, we got off on that little tangent. But no, notice verse 8. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Notice the past tenses of all that. Don't you love that? Since now we have been. It's all done. We are justified by his blood. Much more. Shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Out yonder when we die. Out yonder when we go to be with the Lord. Out yonder when the great white throne judgment comes. We have nothing to fear. We have been saved by his life. And Now notice the argument. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, brought back to God by the death of his son... Much, he's done the greatest thing. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Therein is another theme of chapters 5 through 8. When you see the word saved, do not think of it only at the moment when you got saved. A lot of Christians' whole history of their Christian life just goes back Oh yeah, by the way, 30 years ago at that point I received Christ. That shouldn't be the highlight of your Christian life. That's the starting point. You are saved through all of life. And you will eventually be saved when you get there. So this salvation is a huge deal. It, it, it goes from the point of forgiving all that I've ever done. But it's, it's life now to me. We are not saved by anything we do. We are saved by his life and as we focus on that life in us we are delivered you see that we don't look to ourselves to live the christian life we don't look to ourselves to have joy and peace and all that stuff we don't look to ourselves to produce anything spiritual we're toasters with plugs and we plugged ourselves into ourselves and there's nothing no toast burning at this point there's nothing there we don't look for ourselves for anything. We are saved by His life. And as it dwells in us, that we know it's in us. So therein is a massive theme. 
in chapters 5 through 8 that we are saved. We grow. We, we go forth and conquer by his life. Notice verse 11. More than that, more than that, we also rejoice in God. So we know that we'll be saved by his life when the great, great white throne judgment comes and we'll, we'll enter in. But between now and then, we live a life of rejoicing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that incredible? So it says, more than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, now I'm pounding this point before we get into chapter 5, verse 12. Because, you, because it's a little unfair to Paul. If Paul was here, he'd probably chastise us for picking his letter up in chapter 5. He wouldn't like it, probably. But he's not here, and he hasn't got any say in it. So we're going to do it. But you need to understand that he cares about the first four chapters. Because unless you see yourself fully secure in the reconciliation of the blood of Jesus Christ, you have no ground for growth. If you're always worrying if you're saved, if you're always worrying if you've done enough or do enough, or if you're always spiritually nervous, you will never grow in grace. It is to those who... Listen, when a child... Karen deals with a lot of children in schools that come out of horrible families. I mean, mom's in the jail, doesn't know where the dad is, whoever's raising these kids... They don't even, you think they really care about their education, their school? Their very core needs of security and love and really just stability are gone. And they can't grow properly. Karen does the best she can with them, but, but you're, you're dealing with stuff that's just, you, you haven't done the foundational stuff. So you're, our foundational stuff is that we have been brought back to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. He died in our place to cleanse us from all sins. We are eternally secure. We are saved from wrath to come because His life is in us. And that is the work of God and it's finished. Done. So stop worrying about anything spiritual. Okay? All the work's done to you. I don't know why I'm saying that. Y'all are a relaxed crowd. Y'all are just like way past that. Uh, Cheryl, uh, Cheryl passed a good test Wednesday night. I, Wednesday night, I knew Ed was going to preach, so I said to her, I said, hey, I need some preaching, man. I need, I need my boat filled up. I need my wagon filled. I need that man to shuck the corn and just, I, I'm just, I just, and she said, if you're looking to Ed, you're looking to the wrong place right there. <laughs> she did. She said, she said, you better go to the Lord for that stuff. He's not going to help you with all that stuff. Yeah, but, um, but she's right. And not just because of Ed, I mean, any preacher. You don't ever look at any preacher. You know, nobody's going to fill your boat, man. You get that yourself, all by yourself. So she passed the test. I see you've been listening to me way too long, you know that? Look at verse 12. Chapter, chapter 5, verse 12. This is the tale of two men. This is the tale of two men. Adam, Christ. Chapter 5, verse 12 and beyond are all about two men. Two federal representatives of the human race. 
All the human race is either in Adam or in Christ. One of the two. Notice verse 12. Therefore, just as sin, in the same way as sin, came into the world through one man, Adam, the first man, and death through sin. Notice, death, the inevitable byproduct of sin. And so death spread, passed on to all men. Notice, because all sinned. Now watch this. Paul is not talking about humanity sinning at this point. He's talking about Adam sinning and the fact that we were in Adam when he sinned, we all sinned. The King James uh, has an extra word in there that they should never have translated. It said, the King James have added, for all have sinned. That's not the rendering or understanding of the Greek. It's for all sinned. All sinned in Adam. Now men do sin because of the nature they inherited from Adam, but the power and point of Paul's position here is that when Adam sinned, we all sinned in Adam. And that passed on to all mankind. We weren't there. We were there in him, but you didn't, you didn't raise your hand and go, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to bite the apple. It, you just got it because we're prodigies of Adam. Notice verse 12 goes on, 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. The law was given by Moses about 2,500 years after Adam. So for a couple thousand years, they didn't have the law of God given through Moses. They had generations of peoples. Notice, for sin indeed was in the world before the law, but sin was not counted where there is no law. So, does that mean for the two, first 2,500 years, there was no accounting of their sin? No. Does that mean they didn't suffer the consequences of their sin? Not at all. If they, did, if, if, if they didn't, Sodom and Gomorrah needs an explanation. And those in the flood need an explanation. So there was punishment for sin. It, it's kind of like, uh, let's, let's transport Rick Cagle back to a squad car and a police uniform. And let's take for random somebody that probably would never speed Ed Cobb. And, um, And so Ed's, Ed's, Ed's borrowed Cheryl's charger, and he's running about 85, 90 down somewhere, and Rick turns the lights on and pulls him over. Okay? Ed says to, to Officer Cagle, what's the speed limit? Officer Cagle says, 45. Young man, you're in a housing area, it's 45. And Ed says, really, I didn't see any speed signs. So they go back down the road, and there's no speed limit signs anywhere. Rick, can you give Ed a ticket at that point? Because nothing's posted. Now, you'll probably find something else illegal that he's doing that you can get him on. Yeah. 
but not speeding. You have to have a sign up somewhere in order to, you have to have something to, to make somebody accountable for that thing. So there wasn't the law of the first 2,500 years, but men were still accountable for their sin and the results and consequences. Because it says, it goes on to say in verse 13, but sin was not counted where there is no law yet, even though there wasn't an accounting yet, Death reigned from Moses, Abram, Adam to Moses. Now when you see the little word reigned, we're going to see it numbers of times. In the Greek it means reign as a king. The ruler of a king. That's the reigning, the idea of it is. So notice, yet death reigned. Well how do they know death reigned from Adam to Moses? People died. They lived, they lived, and then they died. The consequences of the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the judgments of God brought on sinfulness, death reigned. People were wicked. And they got so wicked, God had to start over again with Noah. Notice, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Stop right there. So... Death reigned over these folks who lived, thousands, millions who lived during this time, but it said that their sin wasn't in the same likeness that Adam's was. What does it mean by that? Adam had a direct command from a revealed God in the intimacy of the garden. You talk about accountability. You talk about a man fresh off creation who had amazing intellect who had a perfect body. He got a direct command from a loving, clearly revealed God to him. That is transgression. When he bit the apple, whatever that was, and Eve, Eve bit it and Adam followed him, followed her, this was walking, thumbing their nose and walking away from the divine love. So it wasn't that kind of sin, and yet death reigned. Look at verse 15. Notice who was a type of the one who was to come. Now when you read a type of the one who was to come, it's referring to the second Adam, who is Christ. Now follow the train of thought. The first Adam, the federal head, made a terrible choice. And from his choice, because we were in him, we sinned in him, and we have been given all the, I, I, I can't use the word benefits, we've all been given the downflow of that sinfulness. Okay? The beautiful thing about that is that God doesn't hold us responsible for that. God has taken the responsibility for sin on the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, if we reject Christ then we are held responsible for our rejection of Christ. But God has taken the responsibility for sin on the cross of Jesus Christ. So no, no human being can look at you and go, well, you know, I wasn't in the garden. If not, it's not my fault. How can God hold me accountable? He doesn't. Because he, that's how you answer a lost person who feels it's unfair that we're in a condition of sin that, you know, God holds it over to us that, He's going to judge us for. 
God has judged sin on the cross. Men don't go to hell because they sin. Men go to hell because they reject Jesus Christ, God's offer of grace. That's why men go to hell. Okay. All right, so let's go on in the thought. Verse 15. But the free gift, I love that. But the free gift is not like the trespass. There's similarities, but then there's not similarities. For if many died through one man's transgress, trespass, if many died, all men are dead because of Adam's sin, much more have the free grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Isn't that beautiful? Through one man's sin, all suffered. But by one man's obedience, the free gift, the grace of God comes abounding toward us. So you got two men. You got the first Adam, but now introduced to us is the second Adam. And I remind you, that none of these things have anything to do with what we do to get them. It's a free gift. It's hard for us to let that go, isn't it? It's free. All right, verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. So the gift that God gives in Jesus Christ is not like the same result of that one man's sin where all just naturally died. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So it's different in this way. When Adam sinned, all died in Adam. But when Christ came as the free gift, many follow with grace. Not all. Not all. Only those who respond by faith. So see how it's different? First man, everybody was plunged under the deal. No choice in the matter. But now we're given a choice. I want you to think how beautiful that is. That he still allows lost mankind to have a choice to come back to God. Some people have said, well, that's unfair. That Why doesn't he apply the, the gift to all men? naturally and normally why doesn't he just set the whole thing well then he would have a kingdom of robots of people who just responding and they have no choice in the matter so even in man's rebellion he leaves the choice of still coming to the free gift and it's abounding nature verse 17 for if because of one man's trespass adam death reigned reigned as king Death reigned through that one man much more. You see that term over and over again. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. Now stop there and just let that phrase sink in. We've been sold a bill of goods by the religious establishment. We've been told that grace comes through this and that and this and that. It is simply a receiving of that. Receiving of grace. I know you hear this all the time. 
But don't take it for granted because there are those who are laboring under all kinds of religious systems that you get grace by obedience to this and this and this and this. It never says that. It never says that. It says those who receive. How bold it is just simply for us to believe we're perfectly righteous in Christ. That Christ fully lives within us. That the grace of God has super abundantly, constantly in us. See the, see the strength that gives us? We believe that this is true by our receiving, not by our good works or our good spirit or our good attitude or our good behavior or any of that stuff. See? Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it simple? Isn't it easy? Steve Williams was inviting uh, a co-worker to our church from Publix. I don't think she's made it yet, but hopefully she will. And he said to her this, he said, uh, she said, uh, you need to come get some good grace teaching. And she looked at him like, what are you talking? She said, he said, once you hear it, that's all you're going to want to hear. Steve's good at invitations, isn't it? He just, he just walked off from her. He just walked off from her. You need to hear some grace preaching. After you hear that, you won't want to hear anything else. And when you hear that you've received abundantly the grace of God, and it's all by receiving, anything else will put you in bondage. Anything else, your spirit will close down. And you just go home tonight, I challenge you. Go home and listen to the guys on TV. Listen for the requirements that they give you. Send this amount of money in. (laughs) You know, do this, do that. Plant your seed of faith. Pull it off by this or that. Fooey. I have a stronger word, but Karen doesn't let me cuss on the stage. <laughs> that's, that's, as dirty as it, that's as dirty as it gets up here. I mean, listen, you, you hear that. But notice, the, you're looking at the scripture before if, because one man's death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness We will reign in life. We will reign as kings in life. See that? Well, you say you don't know my circumstances. Our circumstances have nothing to do with these verses. We will reign in life as we receive the abundance of grace. There it is. We will reign as kings. 